0: We are the opinions team from Empowered Journalism, and this is the Empowered Opinions Podcast.
1: The UK approached the G7 with a level of enthusiasm I've not seen before on the world stage.
0: So I think there are areas where the UK does want to
2: spearhead. Whether it actually has that capacity is probably a different matter.
1: Half of the world is under 30, you know, we're really doing to be considered.
2: I think we should be focusing less on like plastic straws and more about like ending the fossil fuel industry.
3: Hello everybody and welcome to the ninth episode of the Empowered Opinions podcast. My name is Eva and I'm one of the Opinion Editors here at Empowered and today I'm joined by my fellow Opinion Editor, Rv and two very special guests to talk about the G7 Summit. So I'd just like to start off by introducing our guests to the podcast. So first of all we have Evie Aspinall, who was the Head UK Delegate to the G7 Youth Summit in 2021. And I'd just like to ask you, Evie, if you could provide a brief introduction to your role and explain why you believe that the Youth Summit for the G7 is so important.
2: Hey, yep. So um, this year I had the privilege of being of the head head of the UK's delegation to the G7 Youth Summit. So the G7 Youth Summit isn't like a mock G7. It's like a legitimate thing. It's one of the official engagement groups of the G7. So there's also the women's seven, the C7, um, which is civil society and science and all of those groups as well. And then we're officially there to represent young people's voices, Um, We get an incredible opportunity to be in so many amazing rooms. I met the Prime Minister, I've met the G7 Sherpas, who basically do all of of the donkey work during negotiations. and met so many amazing people um, working with young people across the G7 countries um, to come up with a communique and then present that to to leaders as well. So it's a really
3: amazing opportunity for young people to have their voices actually heard at the G7. Amazing, thank you so much for that introduction and then our second guest today is Dominic Jones who was also a UK delegate for G7 Youth Summit of 2021 Um, and I'd also like to invite Dominic to now introduce himself to the podcast and kind of provide a short introduction to what he the part he played in the G7.
1: Well it's good to be here guys and thank you for inviting me yeah so I worked alongside Evie and other members of of the UK delegation to represent the the voice of of young people at, at the G7 this year so my track was the economy so I was very much involved with of discussions with um, civil servants, with um, senior officials, essentially um, looking at the economy and, and how we can make it better, how we can build back better, that's the phrase, but um, essentially do it properly and do it with the voice of young people and, and the interests of future generations at its heart. So I had an amazing experience, rubbed shoulders with some very important people, spoke at some very important conferences uh, and basically, you know, waved the flag for young people at every opportunity. So. Uh, It'd be great to talk more about it and and share with you uh, how how cool it was just to kind of be involved with it and and really make a difference.
3: Yeah that's fantastic and thank you both so much for agreeing to talk on our podcast today because I think personally I'm quite interested in politics as a young person I think it's really important that we get young people more interested in politics and kind of talking about these global issues that do ultimately affect young people and will um, impact the next generation. So Arby would you like to kick us off with the first question for our guest today? Absolutely. So
0: first question, maybe a bit of a lighter one than the rest of them. So as uh, this was the first in-person G7 summit in about two years because of the pandemic, do you think it lived up to the hype? What were your opinions on it? Um, I'll go to Evie first. So yes and
2: no. So this is a very important opportunity um, for the world in terms of like this is leading nations getting together we have the opportunity to make a difference on the world stage particularly in the coronavirus pandemic like climate change these big issues are like this is the time to do it whether that was achieved I think is debatable I think it's an ongoing problem with the G7 and the G20 and kind of a lot of these international bodies is a lot of talking and there is value in that there is value in building consensus and creating like statements, they are valuable in themselves. And that changes the discourse, and it changes the way different countries are thinking. But in terms of concrete commitments, I think we would broadly say that it didn't go far enough. And I think that's pretty much a consensus across the board. Um, A lot of political thinkers talking about that is that, you know, we didn't get the concrete commitments that we would have liked. It was important that they met, it was important that those discussions were had. But did we make the substantive change that we could have? I'd say probably not.
0: And Dominic?
1: I uh, very much agree with Evie. There was a lot of hype, and uh, rightly so, because it was a, a momentous occasion, um, not not just the, in the political world, but also in the, the civil civil society world as well. Um, there was an amazing group of young people that, that sang a song, a very catchy song about the G7, and really kind of built up the, the buzz, not just in Cornwall, but around the UK and around the world as well. So there was a lot of that. Um, I actually think it did. Um, I think it was was a big deal to, to get them round the table, get them kind of smiling and being together and and addressing some of the hard issues um, I know we're going to come on to talk to them but I think uh, conversation is really important but then on the other hand uh, there was a lot of uh, let's say qualitative kind of promises kind of nice words kind of nice promises but not really much on detail and that's what we were looking for as young people is what can you do for us what can you commit to uh, both now and for the long term and, and a lot of that was lacking unfortunately.
0: That's really interesting to hear you both say that because I know a lot of the time people are very sceptical of these really big events and whether they live up to their the sort of promises on paper and whether those go through. But I, I mean with you in the hope that some some of that does actually take place and does actually
3: find its concrete
0: path and I know we're going to go on to talk about that. Eva do you want to leave with the next question?
3: Yeah definitely so we're kind of going to go into a bit more of the nitty-gritty detail now so as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware the G7 leaders and um, signed up to the Carbis Bay Declaration on Health which meant they were vowing to take steps to ensure that um, the global devastation that coronavirus caused is never repeated. And much of the UK's response to COVID-19, as we know, was derived from the science evidence-based underpinning policies in the 2011 UK influenza pandemic preparedness strategy. That's a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, And we've had pandemics before and we're probably going to have them again. And we said that we learn from them. But how do you think the actions at this this year's G7 summit, do they kind of prove that we're ready to learn from them? And do you think ultimately we're going to be better prepared for any pandemics that we have in the future? Basically, do you think global leaders are going to be able to deliver on these promises that they've made about kind of building back better from COVID-19 and making sure it doesn't happen again? So I'll go to um, Dominic first on that one.
1: It is a very technical health question, um, and I'm not a technical health person in the slightest, but um, there was a bit of ambition, which is always nice. They understand the seriousness of the situation, which is you know a good good thing, especially given that these are meant to be representing the, the seven richest and most powerful countries in the world. So that's good that there's kind of some global action on that. And in terms of the detail, I think there's so many different issues, in particular the vaccine issue. Um there's there's kind of so far that you know one of our policies was t- to drop uh, patents a temporary waiver of patents and we were kind of looking forward to that level of ambition to kind of address the seriousness of the situation and that wasn't in there so you know like i said pandemics do occur regularly but this has been one of the worst pandemics and affected every corner of the world and every kind of person and i don't think the leaders quite managed to step up to the problem in terms of that but that being said there is some good promises in particular uh, the, the promise to deliver millions and millions of vaccines but that's only a certain percentage of what's needed. So unfortunately on that, again, there's always a but with these things.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. And just before I go over to Evie, I've just got a follow-up question now because you kind of made me think about something. When you're talking about ambition, it just made me think about kind of young people and their role that they play in the G7 and in global politics in general. And do you think maybe that young people are necessary to kind of push global leaders to be ambitious and to have these kind of greater goals and to make these more concrete plans and rather than just like the fancy words you were talking about earlier?
1: Absolutely. You know, young people, the the citizens now, but they'll also be citizens for years and years to come. Um, you know, half of the world is under thirty, you know, we really do need to be considered. In response to that, actually, people can accuse us of being naive and, and over ambitious, but actually, you know, if you're not ambitious, what are you? If you're not wanted to change the world then then what are you? So very much young people need to be at the heart of everything. Hopefully, we've set a good precedent with this with the U seven this year, and that can be reflected in in other world decision making processes. So the, the voice of young people is needed now more than ever, but then also uh, for years to come as well, and a long way to continue.
3: Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much for the answer, and thank you for kind of answering my follow up question as well. Um, and I'd like to go to Evie again, talking about: Do you think we're going to learn from the way that COVID nineteen was handled?
2: So cynically and quite depressingly, I think I'm going to say quite strongly no. I think the reason I think that is the main reason that one of the big priorities we had at the start, we saw a massive rush for PPE. And we were like, we're gonna learn from this. We're not gonna do that again. And then you look at vaccines and we did that again. Like every country has hoarded, every country is fighting over vaccines. They're fighting over, like we've just repeated the same mistakes a year later when it came to vaccines. And like, I genuinely think this is partly a problem of like the way our political system functions, but you have a system of nation states where their inherent purpose is to protect themselves and protect their people and they will always think of them first and like yes the UK might say oh we've got some spare vaccines we'll give them away but like by that point the, the, the pandemic is still spreading in other countries that still need help and I just think that's somewhat inherent and I think that there's not that level of ambition on the multilateral stage to ever change that. I think like a long, long way to go. And so, yes, you'll see these great things coming out where they're like, oh, we're going to do a new preparedness strategy. Um, There's loads of like stuff the UK says it cares about. It's going to work on this. But in practice, I don't think much of that is actually going to make a fundamental difference when it comes to the crunch. And it's like they won't they won't waive, waive patents this year. They won't waive them next time. I don't think they'll ever make the actual concrete decisions that are needed to really fix that problem.
0: This is a probably a bit of a follow up question as well, but um, again, really hard I suppose to say. But in that sort of vein, is there a way to stop politicians or leaders from promising things in the moment and then not following up on that? What is the structural, the structural way to to push that to go forward?
2: I think this is the thing is, the, and the main problem is like multilateral institutions, the thing that like the UN just don't actually have any power really. Like they're good, they're important to have. It sets the discourse, all of that again but they don't have the power to hold anyone to account, really. Unless you do something really, really awful and the other nations are going to sanction you, no one's really going to do anything. I think that is the, the crux of the problem. Like We need accountability mechanisms built into these institutions if anything they're ever going to say is going to have any weight or any impact.
0: Really interesting. Thank you. And probably just a really difficult question in general. In general terms of politics, it's always how do you keep people to their promises? And I suppose this leads on to sort of kind of leads on to the next question because the purpose of this whole g7 summit or what they put out as their uh sort of title or their, their idea or aim with this was to build back better from coronavirus and create a greener more pos- prosperous future and we were wanting we just wanted to know with the the prime minister flying from london to cornwall and global leaders gathering in a crowd of definitely more than 30 on a beach how far do you think this goal uh, was achieved? Um, I'll come to EV first.
2: So not fully, I do think on parts of this, the UK has some ambitions. So obviously the flying to Cornwall thing, you just think like the optics of that, surely someone would have said, let's not fly it it just looks bad and one of the one of the things i would say is that like i don't want to focus too much on individual actions when it comes to things like climate change so like i think we should be focusing less on like plastic straws and more about like ending the fossil fuel industry like big changes are more important but stuff like that when you're the leader of the country matters because if you see boris johnson flying wherever he wants you're like well why shouldn't i like it shouldn't be one rule for them and one rule for us and that's a that's a whole other thing but like going into that sort of things it it sets a tone. So that kind of stuff is, is bad. But there's some of the positive things I do think, so climate change, obviously they didn't go far enough. I think you're just we're just gonna be repeating that over the next <laughs> however long. Um, that is that is the big thing is they didn't go far enough. But the UK I do think is quite ambitious on climate change. I mean, the, the, the tagline for COP26 is, con- is consigning cold history. And I do think the UK wants to do that. I don't think it will at COP26, but I do think it has the ambition to do it. And i think that climate change is an area where this government is seeing an opportunity for like global leadership from the uk so i think there are areas where the uk does want to spearhead
0: whether it actually has that capacity is probably a different matter really interesting and Dominic, your
3: thoughts
1: i'm gonna be a bit stronger and say that actions like this absolutely stink of hypocrisy um, and i think that um, it's kind of very much consistent of the the government in a lot of cases uh very unfortunate that that kicked off the summit you know given the hype uh, it was not a good start. And I, can't, I don't think he fully recovered from that either. All eyes are on Cornwall, all eyes are on him. And then doing actions like that is it's not really appropriate. Like Evie said, people look to the G7, people look to the, the G7 presidency for leadership and good standards, particularly on upcoming issues, such as climate change. Not that it's upcoming, it, it is big, it's it's front and centre. Uh, and then when you're doing that, it's just absolutely hypocritical and, and quite abhorrent, really. Um, in terms of the, um, the goals of creating a, a greener, more prosperous future and building back better from coronavirus. Just repeating what you've said, I think there's ambition there. And I, you know what? I think there's ambition for everybody around that table. They wouldn't have come otherwise. They wouldn't have come if, if they didn't think it was a if it was an opportunity to actually achieve that. And not only all in the room together, multilateral, but also the bilateral um, discussions that were going off, there were raising issues, all, all that, that came under that banner. Um, in particular, the more prosperous future, there's there's exciting stuff going on uh, with trade deals, with very much uh, economic issues. That there's, there's a lot of progress going forward, and that's even better in the green issues. So um, I don't think it was achieved fully in one uh, at the event, but there's certainly a lot to come, and that's probably what excites me and a lot of young people is that actually world leaders are starting to listen and they're starting to kind of build the bricks for real progress but it's up to us to hold them to account on that one.
3: So our next question is um, talking about recommendations presented at the summit by the Gender Equality Advisory Council and that they said would help to ensure that women across the globe are at the forefront of the COVID-19 pandemic recovery and kind of at the centre of this Build Back Better agenda. And very recently, specifically in the UK, we've observed the differences in police treatment between um, those who attend the Sarah Everard vigil and kind of football fans in London for the England-Scotland game. And I just wanted to know to know your thoughts about how these nations begin to show their commitment to enforcing gender equality. So I suppose that's a very difficult question again, because it's very easy for these politicians to make empty promises and to talk about things that they're going to do with regards to gender equality and not actually deliver. So kind of your thoughts about how these countries actually begin to deliver on these promises of putting women at the centre of their, their build back better campaigns and agendas so I'd go to Evie first on that one
2: so I think the main thing for this is gender mainstreaming so it's one thing to have women in the room which we don't have in the first place so that's the first step like if you looked at the G7 foreign ministers it was was there one woman maybe but it was basically all men the head sherpas again basically all men so I think, I think it's so important, not only empowering to make the change, not just like having them in the room, but also like embedding it through. So the fact that we had to the General Advisory Council was the second, I think it's the second year they've had that. I mean, great. Did they listen to them? No. They made loads of recommendations. They also endorsed the recommendations of the women seven and like none of it is in there at all. So what like it, frankly, it was a complete waste of time. And like it was putting women off to the side and saying, go and talk about these things. But actually, we're not going to listen to you because none of you are even in the room actually to embed these things. So I think what was one of the cruxes of the issue was just kind of like putting them to the side and not actually empowering them to have any any impact. And so actually they need to be in the room in the first place. Um, I think the second second thing is that like understanding that this is just like an embedded problem within our societies so like the Sarah every, every individual is like the perfect example and we um we spoke about that actually we, we did a statement around that because there was so there's police violence in America against women as well as against BME communities disproportionately and um, so this is something that's affecting like all of the G7 nations and understanding that like we don't have women in any positions of leadership and that's not enough in itself but it's like the first step and like the police force is inherently men. They don't see these, bi- I think that's the crux of They don't see these biases and they don't see the impact they're having because they, they don't think in those ways like. So one of the big things, and I think was one of the most interesting things for me for the entire summit was when I met the prime minister, One of some of the other engagement groups talking to him about aid cuts, and they were saying about how this would disproportionately impact women. Um, And he wasn't having it. He, from his point of view, he was saying, well, we've invested in girls' education. Like, that's what we care about. And we're gonna save all these girls' lives, make all these lives better in developing countries. But what we hadn't actually thought about is like, the aid cuts will disproportionately impact women and girls in these countries who were like, reliant on this. So things like cutting support to refugee services or services to, um, against violence against women, these are things that are stopping girls going to school like you can't just throw money at schools and expect girls to go to school that's not going to happen and that's not going to work so I think there's just like a lack of understanding and it's a much more like broader issue but because they're not women they like they don't have that experience they just don't even understand like these broader issues and they're like, just so narrowly focused that like you need women in the room you need to mainstream gender into the conversation and then we'll start to see change but until that happens like honestly it's a bit of a lost cause.
0: Sorry, just to also interject, uh, another a question whilst you were talking came to me because I know you are talking about having women in the room and that makes so much sense in terms of changing who's making the rules. But do you think these changes need to come from top down or bottom up? How What's the best approach to get the most helpful and useful impacts? Because I know both ways have their own challenges and I don't know which one would be better. I think you're right. I think it needs to be both. But I also think we have to recognise that like, and this
2: is really sad and I really hate to say this as someone that's done like lots of like grassroots feminism and like I think it's so important also they're not listened to like if you look at the Sarah Everett vigil the number of women that took to the street that like were really profoundly moved by that and really wanted to see change and we saw frankly nothing and like you see that and you compare that to how other events have been police anti-lockdown protests all of that and they've been absolutely nothing like fundamentally I think that like We don't have the voice that we should have. And you see these really important movements and like nothing happens. I mean, even like, you know, even all of the parties sort of solutions were let's get more police. No, let's not get more police. Like that's not the solution to violence against women. We don't want more police on the streets. Like the police are inflicting violence upon us. So I think that's the crux. They just like it has to come from top and bottom. But just an awareness that like, unfortunately, our voices aren't heard enough for the bottom to be enough.
3: Yeah, that's a really, really interesting answer. Thank you for that, Evie, and it's a really it's really interesting to hear your insight, obviously, um, as somebody who's gone into the, the political world a little bit with being in the youth seven. So it's really interesting to hear your insight into how um, women do struggle to get into the room, and we need to kind of get women at the table, if you like, to be able to enforce this change. But Dominic, would you like to offer a different perspective, perhaps, on this, um, about how nations um, begin to show their commitment to enforcing gender equality?
1: I don't have a different perspective, but With regard to the G7, the advisory council came way too late. It should have been at the forefront of the minds. It should have been equal to other issues. Uh, The G7 ministers, Sherpas, civil servants, they were meeting months before talking about a whole range of issues, but women's issues, gender issues, were not the forefront of the mind. So there should be, um, like Evie said, um, if you look at the G7, you know, all levels, you know, where are the women? Where are are their voices? And whilst it is more of a domestic issue in terms of the the policing issue specifically... um, um, it's important that people leading the world represent the world and represent the issues that they have. Um, and a very important point there about the mix of top down and bottom up. Um, and I think that's what approach we've tried to do as, as a U7 is really try and hit that sweet spot and um, raising all the issues where possible. You've kind of got to get people on side at all levels whilst kind of standing your ground and pushing things. And that's really important for women's issues as well.
0: So, Moving on to something slightly different. Much of the summit was dominated by criticisms of the UK for their handling of the Brexit agreement, with leaders particularly worried about the possibility of a hard Irish border that would break the Good Friday agreement. Uh, Do you think this was inevitable, especially because it's been the the first time that all these leaders have had a chance to discuss Brexit since the pandemic? And um, do you think this discussion will hinder progress in other areas of the summit? Um, I'll come to Dominic first.
1: I think these sort of discussions are inevitable the part and parcel of every summit but in my personal view they have to happen if you've got world leaders around the table you can't just talk about uh, the sweet and rosy issues where you've got agreement you have to address countries interests and we, we did that as a, as a u7 we thought long and hard about you know where would there be opposition where would there be um, kind of best impact and you know if we do it why why should world leaders not do it And to be honest, I do think it did hinder progress. Um, Nobody came away from the G7 absolutely feeling positive about themselves, uh, smiling, but that is the reality of summits. That's the reality of in-person summits. That's the reality of kind of world politics. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that we've got to, to just deal with. I think it did kind of take away from other areas. You know, think about if world leaders have, instead of, you know, discussing this, which is important, um, particularly for Northern Ireland, um, if they were talking about gender, if they were talking about young people's issues, that would have been amazing, that would have been great, but the reality of politics is, its politics is a, is a world of priorities and the people at the top decide those priorities, so that's kind of ha- how we had to deal with it, um, and I think the media did kind of focus on that and, and the bad things, where it would, be, it would have been great to focus on, on some of the good things, um, I'm a positive person, so I like to focus on the good things, but it kind of does have to happen.
0: That's interesting that you say that. I suppose, yeah, it, it is a sort of a positive-negative thing, which one you decide to uh, to sort of focus on, but it does really matter in terms of global relations. It's a sort of a big deal, I suppose, and it does impact a lot of the other topics. Um, Evie, what were your thoughts on particularly whether it was inevitable and also whether it hindered progress at the summit?
2: I think it definitely was probably inevitable. I think if you look at the way like President Macron approached that situation he was in there guns blazing and he that is what he's like I mean he's just up for election I think that always changes how politicians are as well but um I think that this was somewhat an inevitable conversation it was going to dominate and I think in practice we're going to see worsening UK-EU relations going forwards. And I think that was probably also somewhat inevitable. I think it's a very like tricky political issue and one that like the e- UK and the EU aren't gonna agree on anytime soon. But I also think it's a really big shame. Like it's not a big shame. I think it's an important issue we need to talk about it. But I also think that it's significantly gonna hamper the ability to build consensus. I think one of the big points for the UK for the G7 was that ahead of COP26, which is a really important summit, we were gonna show like, all of the G7 you know, nations united, we're like, we're at the forefront, particularly on climate change, and we're all going to work together and make a difference. And in practice, people talked about the Northern Ireland Protocol way more. Even when, if you looked at Prime, uh, the Boris Johnson's press conference after the summit, the press asked way more about Northern Ireland than about the communique itself. That, like, that's just the reality. And like, that's fair, like, the British press, this is like a UK issue, this is what they care about, absolutely fair. But also it means that like, realistically, we've shown that there are deep divides in the G7 on lots of issues. And like, this is just one of them. Um, you'll see them on the other, like, you know, the US and the EU as well. The tensions there around China and things. But like, this is going to be a big one. And actually, like, if we can't build consensus in the G7, are we going to be able to build consensus across the world ahead of COP26? Probably not.
0: Um, just to follow on from that, do you think the onus is on the UK to push for more consensus and to be sort of a, a cooperative force? But did they approach this with like a non-negotiable attitude? And is is it their fault or is it a, a group a group problem? I think it's a group problem. I think both sides are not gonna budge. Like
2: I think so to the defense of the UK, I think we went in trying to be like, let's not make this the topic of the main conversation. I think that was perhaps naive and was it was inevitable. But I think both sides are very hard on this. And, like, I mean, the answer would be to talk a bit more to Northern Ireland about what they want, but that's a whole other issue. But, like, I do think that, like, this will be an ongoing issue. I think both sides are going to knuckle down on this and it's going to be tense.
0: Really interesting. Um, and r- uh, really interesting to hear your thoughts on that question because I know it's a, it's a tricky one, definitely. Eva, <laughs> on to you.
3: Sorry, I just wanted to stay on that topic for a little bit longer because I had another follow up question Um, to actually both of you. Do you think that this G7 would have been more effective and could have made more progress had the UK remained in the EU? And do you think maybe that would have changed the way that some of the issues were discussed in the G7? So I'll go to Evie first with that one. and I'd like to hear Dominic's thoughts as well.
2: I mean, I, I'll be open and vibrated to remain. And I would say yes. Like, I think that like fundamentally, like the UK-EU relationship was inevitably going to be strained after Brexit and those tensions will be filter into everybody that we engage with the EU on. And like, it's things like vaccines, we're seeing it there again, like if with the UK we're still in the EU, those tensions would be much less of it. Well, it would also, it would have created its own set of problems, but like there would have been a, a very different set of issues. So I think that like, Brexit has played a significant role in like that, that issue, I do think there would be other issues that would be prominent in the G7 instead. So I think there would have been more focus on China and the divides both within the within the EU and between the EU and the US on China probably would have taken centre stage instead. So I think there will always be certain tensions which are like brought up at the G7 and like overly dominate, but like I do think Brexit didn't happen this one. And then Dominic, would you like to give your thoughts about
3: this as well?
1: I'm, I'm actually going to disagree. um I do understand that those kind of issues would have been a bit on civil but as we know the uk and the eu they always like to disagree whether they're you know in or out or whatever it's just a historic thing the uk approached the g7 with a level of enthusiasm i've not seen before on the world stage and i think that was because of brexit and the pandemic um i really think it wanted to show itself on the world stage and i don't think that would have happened if it was in the eu it's very much kind of the start of a new era whether it's a good era or a bad era is up to personal opinion but um i think certainly the government wanted to show itself as this new free independent nation whatever you want to call it and it it tried to do that it tried to kind of do sell itself to the world it it did that by inviting australia south korea south africa and india to the table kind of showing that it's, it's more than Um, just another European country but I do completely understand that actually it could have caused more problems so I don't think it would have necessarily had more progress but I do think um, that the the buzz, the height, would not have been as big uh, if we were still in the European Union.
2: Um, I'm just going to disagree again, sorry, but I think that like Any G7 nation enters the G7 like presidency as like with a load of gumption. It's like seen no matter what to be a huge thing. And like maybe, yeah, we had a bit more to prove post-Brexit, but I don't think that in any way outweighs the extent to which like UK EU relations are severely strained by Brexit and will be for the future. And I think that like ahead of COP26, we were always going to be super into the G7 and super into COP26. And like I don't think that Brexit, I think Brexit just like hampered that entirely.
3: That's really interesting that you both have very different perspectives on that. I'm sorry it was quite a controversial question, but I think it's something that's worth thinking about because Brexit is still at the forefront of our minds and we still don't really know what the impacts of it are going to be as we kind of Move to a UK that's outside of the EU but this is a bit more of a lighter question now I'd like to move on to kind of discussing both of your involvement with the Youth Summit so as we've discussed at the beginning of the podcast you were both heavily involved in this and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about kind of your involvement in it and whether you think this is an effective way to get young people interested in global politics so I'll go to Dominic first on that one.
1: So I'm just going to start off by saying this has been the best Youth 7 ever Um, you know we, we have been involved we've been privileged to be involved but it's very much been viewed by every everyone both in and out of government in and out of the youth voice sector as as highly successful not just in terms of what we've been able to get in the communicate but in terms of like how we set ourselves up how we've kind of established ourselves within this decision making process and that's that's an amazing thing to have been a part of it for me the best things about it was not necessarily the communicate yes it was amazing yes working with kind of other young people it was great The best thing for me was the stuff outside. So I was very much involved with the G7 Employment Task Force. We gave uh, presentations to them. We worked with the Labour 7 to design a a report and a presentation on uh, the future of the workforce uh, and the labour market in 2030. That was an amazing experience. Um, And we also got to speak at the Labour 7 conference as well. So um, I was on a panel with the leaders of the the Trade Union Congress, the OECD, the International Labour Organization. That was the biggest thing for me. and it was great that we could kind of amplify the voice of young people in spaces that have never ever seen been seen before, and really um, make some you know strong points, realistic of course, but um, that that were clear and that were ambitious. So that that's great, and this, the Y7 has been amazing. And then we come on to the communicate, and actually, if we're looking at it, you know, objectively. Uh, we've got the most ever in a communique that voice of young people it's great to kind of establish but actually it has made a difference uh evie will talk more about um some of the stuff that she's been engaging with the with the prime minister but through that being involved with the process at a very uh, high level and and strong level we've actually managed to do that and specifically uh, we got a mention uh with the work that we've done on the employment task force and we also got a, a very strong point on um addressing forced labor in global supply chains and the ambition that i've talked about uh, you know both me and evie have said that that was needed is actually reflected in this uh, because it, it it looks at the global supply chains it looks at the kind of outward looking more than that and it's that very much multilateral approach working with uh, other organizations to, to tackle this out and and um, there's actually a promise for g7 trade ministers to actually you know bring their heads together and and think about things more again not really much detail but actually they're starting to understand some of these things and and look a bit more outwardly Uh, and just to have that in was was great alongside some of the other stuff but really really important to have the voice of young people and that difference would not have been made without our strong voice
3: amazing thank you so much for kind of enlightening us as well a a little bit more about what you were involved with and in particular because prior to kind of researching for this podcast i wasn't even aware that the youth summit was a thing i didn't know that it was kind of such a such an integral part now of the way that the g7 operates and i think it's so important that we make more young people aware of the fact that there is this voice for young people within this massive world stage because oftentimes I think young people can become a little bit scared to kind of put their voice out there especially because as Evie was talking about previously young people are often considered naive or too ambitious or potentially that they're just not kind of worthy of that same level of respect as these huge world leaders so it's so important like you were saying Dominic to get um, young people involved in this kind of thing and to get young people's voices heard in this way. (laughs) So Evie, what are your thoughts on this? And could you maybe talk a little bit about the consultation process for the youth seven? So in the UK, we surveyed 3000 young people about their
2: views on like the four main topics for the G7 this year. Um, And that was really important, I think, because for us, it's like we are representatives. And whilst not everyone has the time, the capacity, the energy to engage with the youth seven, that's absolutely fine. And you can only have one person in the room. Obviously, it's important that we're being guided by what young people actually want, and it's not what the four UK delegates want. So, like, across the G7 countries, like the other with the other delegations, we we engaged with ten thousand young people. So, we did surveys, we did focus groups. This year, we also had a youth forum who have like lived experiences of some of the issues that were being discussed at the G7. Uh, the G7, and they worked with us on that to make sure that our views were representative um, and kind of respecting our diversity of voices and we also had 200 at the table ambassadors who basically were their whole point was to get young people talking about the g7 i think that was really really important we had so many more young people involved this year and i think we'll only continue to grow in the next kind of coming years and that's one of the big focuses like the future leaders network who ran the g7 this year have been absolutely brilliant that's been their driving force is to make sure that as many young people as possible are involved and we will continue to do so I think that is kind of the crux of it. It's not just like we're in the room, but also making sure that we're not just another voice in the room full of other people that just sort of sat around the table, but we're actually making sure that we're representative and we're consulting and making sure that young people's voices are heard, not just our random voices.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'd like to just go back to Dominic again
1: so from those consultations what was clear and and evident was mental health as a priority and we managed to get that in the communique thanks to the hard work of of all our delegates and the head delegates and it was actually a key three theme in every single one of our tracks so that was the work of our consultation efforts that was the work of our u7 negotiations and that was the work of our advocacy efforts as well so um that journey to clear on that issue is is kind of um evident of the the voice working Um, and the process being very successful
0: if I may uh, just before we move on I'm really interested to hear if there are any people listening who are interested in getting involved in something like this what journey or what path might they have to take to get there or what was your uh, both of your journeys into getting to this position to be such an integral part of well a part of the youth summit basically i'll go to you first
2: um as i say so it's really simple it's a really simple application process you literally just like put yourself forwards so like look up future leaders network network look up youth seven um will be being placed in january so join then. Um, but also we'll be doing like a post-summer initiative in the next couple of months, which will have opportunities for people to engage with and work with us on like projecting the youth voice um, nationally. The big thing I would say, and like this does like be my main takeaway from this whole experience, is just like to be bold and just put yourself forward. Like I don't think there isn't a certain set of requirements. Like me and Dominic come from very different backgrounds. We're very different people. I mean I'm five years older than him. Like we're very different. Um, But we want that diversity of voices. And actually there's like no certain way you have to be to be in that room. Like as a young person, your value is your experience. You bring a whole set of knowledge that like those people don't have in the room. They're 50. They haven't lived anywhere near the kind of life that we have. And so every person that is a young person is like skilled and knowledgeable and valuable to this to like this process. So like definitely just just feel free to like get involved.
0: If you ever have any questions, let us know. Yes, Dominic, if you had anything as well.
1: Yeah, my background is in in youth voice. I've done a lot of stuff. Um, I am only 19. I'm still a student, but... um Kind of, I bring a, a fresher perspective having been involved in a lot of youth voice structures such as uh, my local youth council, uh, the national UK youth parliament and uh, kind of like regional youth combined authorities and stuff so I uh, kind of on that level bring that kind of experience and it's been great to harness what I've learned and, and the skills I've developed to another level completely and it's it's been amazing so I just just say to anybody don't be put off you bring what you bring you're you you are your own unique individual you have your own unique skills experiences that that makes kind of makes you an amazing you know that's why young people are so amazing because we have that freshness we have that that ambition um, and if you can bring that ambition to the table as the world leaders bring their own interests to the table we just need to be in the room raising stuff so if you want to be a part of it just keep going keep keep waving the flag for young people and uh, there will be something for you. Uh, you can you can do
0: it really interesting and, and great to hear both of you say that um really motivating actually i hope lots of people listening go ahead and um, apply and try and get involved in that So following on from that, as a result of youth campaigning, the G7 communique references the impact that the ongoing pandemic has had on mental health and wellbeing, as we just discussed with um, Dominic mentioning, um, the impact that the youth uh, forum had on that particular priority why was this such a big priority for the Youth Summit and what other policy recommendations do you feel are particularly important from the Y7? So I know we've touched already but if you had anything to add Dominic um, I'll come to you first.
1: I think um, on the issue of mental health I've not necessarily got a lot to add because that's not my policy area but I just know that it's such a big priority for young people and it's great that we were able to shout that uh, because you know we got to be loud and proud about the issues that, that that young people are concerned about and I don't think it will ever not be an issue. It's a very complicated policy issue, but the fact that young people consistently bring it up and consistently feel like not enough is being done. It was great that we could raise that at the G7. You know, at the, the big one of the biggest kind of international forums with the most powerful countries. It, it was great to do that. Um, in terms of recommendations from the Y7. Uh, we had a lot of themes that were going through and a key to, to our approach was future generations and we very much embedded a few issues in that. It was um, sustainability, so the climate kind of um, immediate action to, to kind of protect stuff. There was also sustainable spending. It's not that catchy, but basically ensuring that what we spend now makes a difference. You know, that you can look at that either way, you know, not spending in certain areas, but basically ensuring that um, we don't waste money now that we actually put it in the right areas and we, we focus on things that can make a difference, such as skills, education, that kind of thing, supportive labour markets, international aid, where money makes such a big difference in the world and can help uh, poorer countries kind of grow up. Um, and then also, um, and I'm sure Evie will, will mention this, keeping pace with the, the ever-changing digital world because um, that's moving faster than any of us can run it's moving faster than uh, the G7 wants to admit uh, or, or anybody wants to admit, but um, there's also so many people that can be affected by it. So if we don't kind of do something now, then the, the consequences will be everlasting. So the, the key thread from the Y7 was that let's think about the future um, and let's act now
0: really interesting answer and i love the idea of the like targeted spending um because i know a lot of difficulties in policy have been them throwing money at places that just didn't need it or weren't particularly targeted to help the issue um evie what were your thoughts on that
2: i think dominic did an excellent quick summary of the communicate i was very impressed um i think the one other thing yeah for me because i was on the digital track um one of the big focuses for me was online safety and like experiences online. And the big thing for me that was in the communique, so when I presented, I presented the G of Chirpers. And the big thing I went on was that like, they kept talking about, we need to protect young people online. They need the safest safe faces need to be safer. But at no point did they talk about engaging young people in that process. And I was like, it comes from a completely naive perspective, which doesn't recognize that young people spend so much more time online than probably any of them ever have and have had completely unique experiences online. And I was like, you need to talk to young people like that is what you need to do and like one of the, the big things going forward is that the UK for Jonathan Black he's like oh we'll work with you on this and there's a, a body called the Global Partnership for Artificial Intelligence and um, which has loads of the digital stuff and we're going to work with them now to like build a youth council on that which feels like oh like is that going to do that much I think I think it's a really big step towards working with young people about young people's issues and I think it's a, something that can be mirrored across other issues So that's why I'm really excited about that policy in particular because it's a really good model to repeat and actually like the crux of it is understanding that like young people have a perspective that they don't understand uh, when they're 50 so we need young people in the room and kind of recognizing that and getting the first steps towards that is really exciting for me.
0: Really interesting and yeah definitely um, youth involvement in youth areas just makes sense but funnily enough just not a perspective that um, anyone who leads any country seem to have really interesting um eva do you want to go ahead with the last question
3: yeah i'm going to cut in again though because before i do i've got another follow-up question um because i'd like to ask Evie, particularly as your area was kind of more digital why do you think online safety was such a big factor in this year's summit in particular was there anything that the pandemic perhaps influenced that maybe caused it to be a bigger issue in this summit I think it's definitely just like the
2: rise of Zoom and, uh, and education online and like people are experiencing more online spaces and in many ways that has been great like if we didn't have digital like this pandemic would have been 50 times worse it's also been in itself like created so many issues the sense of disengagement you have like talking to people over Zoom compared to in person the mental health impacts of just like sitting in your bedroom never leaving and that's one of the things I think is everything is like interconnected so we go back then to mental health so I think it was I think the pandemic definitely made this a bigger issue for this year but I also hope that it doesn't stop being a big issue because ultimately like we're in a technical revolution like it's going to keep going we're going to be spending more and more time online like I don't see that trend changing anytime soon so we need to keep that focus and that momentum on that because young people particularly are going to be affected by this change towards more zoom and online working and stuff.
3: Yeah, thank you for that. That's really interesting. And I definitely agree that the pandemic would have been incredibly difficult had we not had platforms like Zoom. And um, something I loved in the pandemic was like the National Theatre, the YouTube videos that they kept putting out, they were incredible. And I think we're also fortunate that we have this online platform, but oh, as always, that comes with a responsibility to use it safely. <laughs> So I'd like to bring us to a bit of a close now with a very controversial, potentially, question that I'd like to throw at you both and see if you have any thoughts about it. Because I have some personal thoughts and I'm sure Arvi does as well that we might share at the end. But I'm sure having been involved in the, the Y7 so heavily, you both have thoughts about this. So we've often heard it said by some people that the G7 summit is the height of bureaucratic elitism. And I wondered if either of you have any strong thoughts on that. Like, do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Or do you kind of see both sides of that argument? And I'll go to Dominic first on that one.
1: You throw me straight in the deep end with that question, um, you know, putting me on the spot there. Um, uh, to be honest, my instinct says no. And it could have been back in the day. On the face of it, it's it's a group of the world's richest democratic countries coming together for a little chat. You know, that's, that's all it is. But when you look kind of deeper, when you look further on, that, that arguably is just the the tip of the iceberg. Uh, behind the scenes, there's so much going off in the build-up to it, and it's been really exciting to be a part of it. And actually, this year, they've really tried to, to break that down. Yes, there are a lot of older white men involved. Yes, there is a lot of politics involved. Yes, you've got to kind of ponder to country self-interest, but actually, at the heart of it, it's... It very much is a, it's a process more than anything it's a it's a conveyor belt and it's a summit for a reason because we're getting up to that that summit and you can't get up to the top of a mountain on your own you've got to do it with other people and that's why they've got the engagement groups that's why they're trying to listen to The voices in society, um, civil society, young people, women, science, you know, the labour communities, all kind of having to say that's why they've got the Sherpas working, trying to think about what people will raise, what issues will come up, how can we do it. That's why ministers meet all, all year long. I don't think it's that elitist because they're trying to open up. I do think it's a little bit bureaucratic because the processes are very much what the civil service and what the world leaders want. But again, I think that's changing. We have come across some very interesting ways of working that have surprised me, namely... and I'm sorry if I outed them, but it has to be done. A 49 slide presentation by the Labour 7 that just did not need to be 49 slides, could have been done in 15. That kind of outdated way of working uh, is evident across uh, the G7 process uh, by a lot of different groups. So uh, I'm going to say no, uh, but I do understand uh, why some would say yes. Um, I think the G7 is changing uh, and it's going to get better um, building on the success of this year. Um, so my answer is a big fat no.
3: Very interesting that's but kind of a different perspective to the one that I have and because obviously I'm not obviously not as involved with the G7 as either of you are and um, Evie what are your thoughts on this? So as ever I'm probably
2: slightly less positive than Dominic but um, I think there's probably like a middle road I think that like the G7 is not the most I mean it's definitely not the most inclusive like international forum compared that to the UN it, like it's not even the same league it's completely different. But I do think there's a space for it. I think that in practice, it's very important that like nations that are like minded, that are like they take it with a pinch of salt, trying to do good broadly. I think having a forum where they can discuss issues where they agree on and take action on climate change in theory is important and good. And I think they are becoming more reflexive. So things like the D10, um, in, in, like inviting South Korea, South Africa, that kind of thing that's good. I think there's a growing recognition that the G7 model as it is doesn't work. Like there's not enough interesting voices in that room. And I think actually the invited guests this year, I mean, it was primarily driven by a a dislike of China. And actually, instead, it was instead driven by we want to support developing countries, and they invited three developing countries to the room. That to me would have been better. So I do think that like, it's not the best, most inclusive or effective model. I do think it's bureaucratic. And I do think that like, it's a lot of talking. I do still think that's important. And I think there is a space for it. But I also think that we need to be like, okay, we have this place, but also we need to have like the United Nations, even the G20, where they're talking about bigger issues with a much more diverse range of voices are probably more important. But I do think you have to have opportunities to build consensus. Otherwise, like realistically, if we didn't have the G7 and these countries weren't talking to each other, no one will be taking the leadership on climate change there. And that would be bad. So like objectively, like we need the forum, but we do like, it's not inclusive and it is bureaucratic.
3: I think that's a very nice perspective to finish on Evie because I think personally um, I would have to agree that it it doesn't seem to me to be very inclusive and it seems that there are other forums like you say like the UN that seem to be much more um, representative of the world stage in general but on the flip side there is definitely a place for the G7 and it's really important that we have these big global leaders like both of you have mentioned talking about these big issues because if the global leaders kind of instigate this change then we would hope that the rest of the world would kind of follow. Um, Ardi, do you want to finish off by wrapping
0: this up yeah I just just to add um, my own thoughts on this I I think it's really interesting to hear both of you talk about that specifically because I know if you take like the average Joe, all they would have heard about in terms of the G7 would probably be Boris Johnson flying to Cornwall and the the sea shanty group who sang at Cornwall. Like I don't think anyone really knows any more in depth about that. And I suppose that's really just the media and the media headlines. So having you guys on to discuss what really happens in the room and what happens in the wider circles, I think that's probably the step to take to get more people to understand and then make this more and more impactful event so thank you so much for both of you for coming on Uh, it's been really interesting to hear your thoughts i think both eva and i learned so much about the g7 and its aims and its ambitions etc and wish you all the best with everything that you've got going forward and yeah so um to everyone listening thank you so much for sticking around if you want to follow evie or dominic we will have both of their twitters in our description and um yeah carry on supporting and seeing what they get up to otherwise thank you for listening and uh until the next time. The Empowered Opinions podcast, empowering the voices of today. If you would like to hear more from us, you can check out our website at empoweredjournalism.com or follow us on social media at Empowered Journals on Twitter and Empowered Journalism everywhere else.